So, Nicole, I know you're very proud of your Greek heritage. and We've talked a lot about that uh, from time to time. Could you share some of your insights on how your heritage really shaped you? Yeah, so, um, so I am very proud of my Greek heritage. In Greek culture, there are so many things that are intertwined. First of all, the religion in Greek culture is so the church and your family and your society in Greece, they're, they're all one and the same. I'm very proud of the culture because I think there's a lot of great things in the history of Greece that make it um, such a great kind of model of how to live your life. So I grew up um, and my I was very close to my maternal grandparents. They taught me very early on the importance of working hard, the importance of uh, being proud of what you, you know, being proud of what you do. So don't expect things from other people work hard and, and try to better yourself. And um, when you do, then you reach out to the people around you and you help them too. So just the importance of earning, but also the importance of giving. And I think in, in, in America, frankly, the culture is much more earn for yourself, but not necessarily um, help those around you. And so that uh, sort of is the epicenter of how I was raised. So we didn't have a ton of disposable income, but I very keenly remember my mom talking to me all the time about, we always sponsored children with UNICEF and it was always, you know, for church, like donations and how are we gonna help whatever and, and helping animal rights and helping, helping, helping. It was so, you know, waved into my tapestry and it's very much from her culture that she brought that because um, she grew up very poor. So all of those things are really, are really good and important traits. I think that um, you know, even growing up in the U.S., I've tried to sort of keep those things close because, again, I think sometimes we lose sight of that in the society that we have grown up in, and you know, the material things have become increasingly important in America over the last couple of generations. Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in instance of wanting to run towards it. Welcome to Great Minds. Today, my guest is Nicole Pangas, CEO of Ampersand and one of my very favorites. Welcome, Nicole. Great to see you. Great to talk to you. Um, and thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Your mom has been so influential and you've talked about that quite a bit also. Uh, and yet a lot of your upbringing, there were real conflicts between what was viewed as sort of the traditional pathway a young girl should follow from a Greek home and the path that you ultimately followed. And clearly there was a lot of self-motivation, a lot of support from your parents, but there were a lot of conflicts with your culture. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. Um, and this is kind of goes back to the culture. So 
you know, my mother was progressive relative to a lot of my family. And so growing up, my mother did push me to go to college and um, she was very proud because I was sort of very geeky. I've always been sort of geeky and sort of uh, overachieving in a fairly quiet way, but I, but I would just, you know, like I worked at a bank in high school instead of like working, you know, babysitting like my friends did. And, um, you know, like on, on the, uh, like I was on, I was this, I, I sat on the school board, like the board of education of my town, there was a student representative. So I'd be like sitting at like the board of education meetings, like a, as a junior in high school or sophomore in high school, whatever I was. And so I guess I like kind of followed a different path partially because I had this sort of drive in me to try to do better. Um, and my mother really supported that. But to your point, at the same time, I grew up because I came out of a very traditional family where I was supposed to follow the script and the follow following the script for a Greek girl was marrying a Greek guy from a good family who made more than me. Cause I, you know, like, yeah, Nicole be successful, but, but actually you need to be supported by a man. So that was very much into my internal mantra. And my job was to be a nice Greek wife who may or may not have had a profession, but definitely had, you know, little Greek children who I would take to church every Sunday and make sure that they spoke fluent Greek and make sure that I cooked Greek food every Sunday and, you know, all of those sorts of things. And so it's something that I battled from, frankly, from when I was a little kid, because I'm like, why do I need, like, why do I need to do all that stuff? You know, like I, I always just wanted to have a career and, you know, kids came and I'm, I'm thrilled that I have children. Don't get me wrong, but I didn't have this nagging, you know, I wasn't the 15 year old girl that was dying to get married and have kids. I was the 15 year old girl who was dying to have a career and, um, and really be in the professional world. And that was my drive. And so, you know, to your point, I think I had some family members that saw this drive in me and thought maybe, I could get to where I am now, maybe not exactly, you know, exactly where I am, but you know, there was something different about me. And I think some of my family members saw that early, but there was like more than a 50, 50 shot that I would have ended up exactly with what I just told you, which is marrying a Greek boy who I met in my church and getting married and having kids and, and not having a career. And so, um, so I'm happy where I ended up obviously, but, um, but I, but I'm very careful with my I have two daughters, nine and six, and um, I'm very careful to not steer them in the way I was steered. And I've talked to my my parents about it, and just said, like, do you know that I know you didn't do this intentionally, but do you know that as you were saying these things to me growing up, that it confused me. Didn't I say it's a mistake to educate women? But nobody listened to me. Now we have a boyfriend in the house. Is he nice Greek boy? Oh, oh no, no Greek. No Greek, Xeno. Xeno with the big long hairs on top of his head. Costa. But you want to obey your parents, you know, like you want to have their acceptance. And so I'm very careful with my daughters to not feed them ideas on what they should be or if they should get married or who they should marry or if they want to, you know, parents, if they want to be moms, if they don't want to be moms. I don't I don't feed them that. And if they ask me questions about it, I say, it's your choice. You can do whatever you want. Long term, I believe that it's very easy to predict 
that there are going to be lots of successful companies born of the internet. They're going to have very large market caps and, and, and so on. I also believe that today, where we sit, it's very hard to predict who those companies are going to be. So looking back on sort of the beginning of the internet boom, there were a number of companies that had just tremendous influence who long outlived, in many cases, their own lives. There were many that disappeared. Uh, great brands that we all remember from the early days of the web, like Alta Vista and Prodigy and a number of others. But there were certain companies whose influence far outlived what anybody imagined then and who really produced incredible talent. One of those was a company that you worked at, I think, ultimately twice, 24-7. Let's talk about that company and the magic that came out of that place. Oh, that's a great question. So first, thank you for saying that. And I'm sure Dave Moore, if he ever listens to this, will we'll, we'll be very proud that you said that. Um, yeah, 24-7 was a very unique place to work. Um, so I'll say a few things. So one is, you know, Dave Moore originally, because I started working at 24-7, I was 21 years old, a few weeks out of school, um, the first time when I went to work there. And then I went back a second time in 2005 after I'd finished my master's degree. Uh, and in both times, Dave Moore was the CEO of the company. Um, and Dave is, I mean, you know, Dave, he is a smart man, uh, takes risks, uh, trusts his team, builds a culture of we can do this. Um, and, um, you know, is a man who really brings people up. You know, he's a leader who brings people up. I always say, you know, as a leader, you know, the joke is as a leader, you work for your team, not the other way around. People think their team works for them. As a leader, I think true leaders, you work for your team, not the other way around. He partnered with Jonathan Sue, um, who event went, Tap Nexus and then AT and T and um, and he left AT and T recently, but the two those two uh, people, John and Dave, were a partnership that I think created magic. They 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 just built a culture of really great. Um, we can do it, and brought their teams up with them. And I'll give you a very specific example of the type of stuff that happened. When I had Zoe, my my older daughter, I she was six months old. I was uh, I was thirty two, I guess, at the time. Um, and Dave Moore, after I just got back from maternity leave, you know, a few months before, uh, Dave Moore offered me the job to be president of Europe. Thirty two years old, brand new mother, right? There's a lot of CEOs that would never have done that. And Dave just thought that I had earned that role. He wanted to give me a bigger opportunity from what I was doing. I was running global product management at the time. And, and that's the kind of stuff that he did. You know, Dave, Dave took chances on people that others probably would have said, oh, she's a new mom. She can't, how is she going to run Europe? She's a new mom living in New Jersey. Or she's in her early 30s. She's not going to understand. How do you be president? You know, how are you president of another of another region that she's never lived in, worked in, 
all of these things and, and they just took risks on people. Um, and, and that's one example of a zillion that they did. And that I really, that's, you know, that's how they made magic. Brian Lesser is another great example of that, right? Brian, Brian and I were both, you know, director level folks and the, and we just got pulled from our jobs and put into much bigger jobs than arguably we had earned at the time based on our title and our age. Um, because people, they just believed that we had the capacity to do more, more. Um, so you know, it, leadership matters a lot. So if you're in a company where the leaders of your company won't do that, you know, I wouldn't stay if you're very motivated to do bigger things because it's very easy to get caught in the flywheel of not moving around very much in a company. Um, but find the companies like 24-7 where, you know, you want a company that'll take a chance on you. Nicole, your background is so unique in that you have a real understanding of what's under the hood. You approach things not only from the perspective of a typical CEO, but you know way more than the average about what actually makes everything work. Let's talk about that part of your background a little bit as well. Yeah, I mean, I well, I ran, I ran, you know, I ran global product management for 24 seven, um, for years. And, um, and, and I was, you know, and then I was a, a COO for a while in my career. And so, you know, the Zaxxis product and technology teams were under me. And then I moved to group M and did sort of the global technology product stuff there. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm an underbelly. My joke is that I'm really, um, sort of a product operations geek that's parading as a CEO because um, because my my mind really goes to that stuff. It's helped me immensely though in my career, the fact that I understand the engine room better than most people in the rooms that I'm sitting in helps helps quite a bit. It also gets you in trouble though, because as, as a CEO, most people don't want you or expect you to be in the weeds. And so I have to check myself a lot depending on who I'm sitting in a room with to not go too deep and to stay... Um, higher level, but it's good to know how, how, how things work. But the truth is a CEO is responsible for strategy and, you know, messaging and those sorts of things. And, you know, getting too much in the weeds is also distracting. Um, But it, but it's, but it's helped a lot to understand. I do think I will say this, I do think in the world that we're moving into where things are more digitally driven, technologically driven, more real time, uh, I believe that we need more CEOs that have operational and product backgrounds because I think it's as important to know how to manage a healthy P&L as it is to actually understand this technology stuff. I don't, I can't fathom not understanding how the world's evolving technically right now as a CEO. I just think it's too easy to get run over given the pace of, of business right now. So looking back on that early part of your career, you were in the company of some terrific talent and some great leaders. Who are the ones who really stand out, some of those early great minds who really influenced you, mentored you, and really helped you grow as, uh, you know, what anybody objectively would call a young rising star? Um, Well, I mean, Dave Moore is kind of, you know, like a, like another father figure to me. So he definitely has been around a lot. You have to do a better job of demonstrating the value of your content to your target audience. 
Totally free content is a thing of the past. People pay to watch special sporting events, concerts, movies on TV. Online premium publishers need to decide on the price of admission for their content. Ari Blumen, who unfortunately passed away from leukemia a few years ago, but for those who might be listening that know his name, he was he was tough, he was gruff, um, but he he more than anybody, you know, when I first started in media, he sort of um, sort of the first person who believed me in me before I believed in myself. He you know, when he moved to Group M, when he became the head of investment, you know, he he was the one that started pushing viewability um, and really put a stake in the ground before anybody else did. So Ari Blumen, uh, and he did a ton of stuff at 24-7 before, you know, the basis of, of the Media Innovation Group and then Zaxis really was formed, um, you know, from Ari, you know, that was sort of Ari, the, the nucleus of that started at 24-7. Um, in a business that we called B3 and then got moved into the Media Innovation Group, which then moved into Zaxis. Um, and so Ari had a lot to do with sort of the beginnings of that. And so he he's a you know, very important person um, to me as well. And so, yeah, now that you're saying it, I guess I never thought about it, but like they're, they're just people that floated around that organization who the collective brain power of the people in the conversations was really kind of phenomenal. And then of course we got bought by WPP in 2007, I guess it was. Um, and, um, you know, and then you kind of get, you know, you get in a room, you know, again, I was, I was young in my early thirties, you get in a room and you're sitting with Martin Sorrell and Erwin Gottlieb and, and these folks who are legends, like literally legends. And so um, having early exposure to those, you know, to those folks and understanding how they ran their businesses and what their thinking was. And Erwin is great about, I mean, you know, Erwin, he's great about going back and explaining the trajectory of how things have evolved in media. And he was there the whole time and he created a lot of the mechanisms that still are in place today. And so it's amazing to hear the origins of all this stuff. So I was really, look, it's not like I haven't worked hard in my career. I have. However, there's always a combination in my view of sort of luck and talent and work, you know, it's like luck, talent, and effort. It's that combination. Um, and in my case, I was very lucky to be around some folks who were uh, very, you know, legendary and who would take a chance on me and who supported supported me, you know, both from a professional perspective and a personal perspective. And all the people that I just mentioned, you know, were those people for me. So, Nicole, you have an uh, incredible perspective on WPP both historically and as it's evolved. You worked for Sir Martin. You worked very closely with Mark Reed. Uh, and you have real insights into WPP uh, as 24-7 some time ago was acquired by WPP. Can you reflect on that tenure early on and give us your take on the evolution of WPP as it stands today? Yeah, so I agree with you. I mean, I... I um there's a lot of amazing talent at WPP. And to your point, I, I, I really, um, you know, loved, uh, being, you know, being part of sort of the Martin Sorrell, um, kind of machine. And it was really interesting to see how his mind worked. He wouldn't, the man wouldn't forget a thing. I mean, we'd, so we'd, we'd report our numbers in his quarterly reviews. We'd, we'd have to go report our numbers 
And I would just make a mention that wasn't even the biggest thing that was happening in the business at the time, because eventually 24-7, I became president of the company. And so I would report the numbers with Dave every quarter. And the next quarter, you know, Dave and I would walk in and Martin would ask me a question on something. And he remembered that I said something. I didn't even remember I said something. And 24-7 was not huge relative to the WPP business. So, you know, just Martin and his his team were just so in, you know, acutely aware. Some would argue maybe too much in the weeds, right? Because for Martin to remember something that Nicole Pangas said a quarter ago, but but that's just how his mind works. I mean, he's he he just does not forget a thing. Um, and Mark Reed, um, I also met before we got acquired because Mark Reed was actually the executive sponsor of the 24-7 acquisition. I don't know if everybody knows that or not. He was the president of WPP Digital and a huge supporter of moving media into the digital age. And that's really the reason WPP bought 24-7 was because they got technology and a whole bunch of data and technology geeks, you know, across the globe in one fell swoop. And so, um, so, so, so Mark, I agree with you. He's very forward thinking. Um, and, uh, and Andrew Scott, who's the CEO of WPP also super great, super smart guy. Um, you know, and, and so there's, there's so much talent there. So look, you know, hindsight, I have nothing but great memories. Was everything perfect? Of course not. You know, it's hard to be part of a really big global organization. Um, there are a lot of CEO titles in an organization like that. So sometimes it was hard. The hardest job for me being a COO within WPP was, you know, where do you need to get permission to do things? Like, you know, like there's so many, there's agency CEOs and then regional CEOs and then presidents of different groups and all this sort of stuff. So, you know, the navigation was hard sometimes, but there's a ton of great talent there. And I think what Mark and Andrew have been doing in the time that they've taken over is, you know, uh, Martin created a structure that worked for the time, but given the change in dynamics of the industry, it, it doesn't, it doesn't work anymore. Right. But it worked for a very long time. So I think this consolidation and like the Cantar, um, uh, sort of divestiture and some of these other things are really trying to move WPP to turn the corner into sort of what what the new age is going to be for agencies, which is going to look you know which is going to look different than than what it was. So um, you know, and I hope I hope that they do it. Look, it's not an easy job. I'm not going to lie. I mean, just knowing to your point, I know the underbelly of WPP. They have a they 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 have a big job. I will tell you, they're moving faster than I thought they'd be able to on some of the changes that they're doing. Um, and so, and so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm watching, I'm watching and, 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 um, and I'm rooting for them, you know, because there, there's a lot of great talent there and there's a lot of people that are trying to do very right by their clients. Um, but, you know, it's hard to move 130,000 people around. <laughs> Let's talk about your route getting to Ampersand. It was not really conventional. There was a little hiatus in there. Uh, but let's talk about how you got to where you are today. <laughs> um, so the story is, uh, so I actually left WPP. Uh, I resigned um, in September of 2017. And uh, I think I could say this now. He won't be... I, I don't think he'll be upset with me. I know he won't be upset with me. Uh, Kelly Clark had offered me a CEO job within Group M. 
I'd been there in keep in mind, you know, as I said, I grew up at WPP. So I went back at 27 years old, uh, 26 years old, something like that. Went back. Uh, we got bought in 2007, been there ever since kind of rose through the ranks and I was offered a CEO job, but it wasn't exactly the right job for me, even though it was a CEO title, which of course is amazing. I was 38 years old or something like that. Um, it just didn't feel right. It didn't feel like the right job for me. And so I, I resigned and I resigned with no job. Um, and I took, uh, I took time off. Um, I, (laughs) I took my kids to school for the first time, you know, uh, and, and, uh, brought them home and helped them with their homework and all the amazing things that, you know, I hadn't even taken proper maternity leaves with either one of my kids. Um, and so I just took time off and I sounds silly, but I like Marie condoed my house. I went and, you know, went to the gym in the middle of the day and all the things that you would never do when you get on the flywheel right out of college. And, you know, I, I didn't have a week off of work from the time I graduated college. So that's what I did. And then um, I was, I was sort of looking for, you know, I was kind of passively looking for a job, but not really in a rush. You know, I, I don't, I don't uh, live an expensive life. And so I, I had money stocked away. Um, I, uh, I, I, you know, I was, I was in the process of, um, of, uh, you know, separation and divorce at the time too. So I sort of needed some personal time as well. That wasn't public to people at the time, but that had been ongoing for some period of time ahead of this. So I just needed some time for myself, frankly, um, to find, you know, to just kind of recenter. And, and I got an in- inbound email about then NCC, um, kind of early on in 2018. So I, I had stopped, you know, working at the end of, at the end of 2017, got this email and I was like, what is this company NCC? And I looked at the website and, um, frankly, I would not have answered the executive recruiter, but for this, um, I saw that uh, AT and T. There was an AT and T logo on the NCC site, and I saw it was Comcast, Charter, Cox, AT and T, Verizon. So I saw all these logos. I'm like, okay, there's some big companies here, but of course everybody has logo soup. But AT and T was the one that stuck out because, to my earlier point, Brian Lesser and I grew up together in WPP, and he happens to be one of my closest friends. And so I texted him and I said, Lesser what's this NCC company? Like they just reached out to me for the CEO job. Um, what's their deal? And, and Brian said, Nick, you should take that. You should take that meeting. They're actually a very interesting company in TV. And I really think based on what, you know, kind of your background, I think you like, that would be a good fit for you. And so, and I reached out to one other person um, as well. Um, and who's in the TV space. And I said, do you know this company? And they did. And they said, it's a job that you should, not only um, not only should you take the meeting, but if you get offered the job, you should take that job. That's what that's what this person said. And so I went through the interview process, and I found out about the consolidation of Addressable, which um, was announced, and the fact that all the set-top box data insights were going to be centered at Ampersand. And so it was kind of like it was it was really the perfect job that I never knew was there for me because. It kind of gave the, I really wanted to do something in sort of video slash TV, like something in the new age of television, because I really felt when I resigned from WPP, I was concentrating on companies that were taking a digital-like approach to television, because I really think that's the next push in media. So it was first, it was digital, 
And then it was programmatic digital. And I think, you know, programmatic-ish TV or data-driven television is the next decade of growth for media. And so I really wanted to be in that space. But little did I know that this, you know, local television, local linear television company would be at the epicenter of that. I mean, who would have thought, but it's because of the ownership and the partnerships that this company has that it, so I, so I interviewed for the job and, um, and um, I was interviewing for another job at the same time as well. Um, and this one, this one kind of came to the end and, and I, I was every conversation I had, I was more excited about the opportunity because I just, I realized sort of the raw ingredients that this company has literally no other company has. I mean, nobody has the scale, nobody has the data, nobody has the relationships um, that NCC had, you know, and that's all before I walked in the door. And then you kind of bring the data and technology geek hat that <laughs> I have from my WPP days. And, and, um, and I'm, yeah, I'm really proud of what we've done in the last couple of years. We have a lot more to do, of course, you always have more to do. Um, but I think we, I think we've laid a really strong foundation for bringing, um, you know, data-driven television, uh, you know, forward quickly. Nicole, contrasted with WPP, where you may have had a lot of presidents and a lot of divisions, but there was ultimately, you know, a single board and a single ruler, if you will. Um, At Ampersand, you've got a very unique ownership structure with three big players, mostly cooperating, but sometimes in competition with each other. Uh, talk about what that's like managing that board contrasted with where you were before. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely been interesting and different. It's, it's, and it's different being in front of the board at Ampersand versus, you know, sitting in front of Martin at WPP, right? Because you're, you're really convincing one person, you know, Martin was sort of the, the decision maker at WPP, right? Like there was no question about it. In this case, it's it's definitely more conversations, right? Because to your point, um, three owners, different sizes, all that sort of stuff. But I will tell you, it's not the competition part is never is never the issue. The conversations that we have is that we're all collectively, and this is not just owners too, it's also partners, right? All of the collective, again, all the companies I just mentioned, Verizon, who we announced it, uh, you know, an addressable and, and larger strategic deal with just a couple months ago, all of these companies are in the same position, which is they are, they are established companies that have been very successful in the traditional media business who are um, navigating and moving into a digital first world, right? And the truth is only in the collective will all of these players be successful so you know it's ncc was created because while the cable operators theoretically competed with each other it was only if they came together and worked together that they'd all be successful right nobody doubted the sound strategy of cable in the local marketplace if you were looking to buy espn or cnn or discovery but that sound strategy was clouded by executional burden If you were looking to buy cable in a market like Chicago, you had eight MSOs and 55 head ends and affidavits in a shoebox and invoices were three months late. And Ampersand, formerly known as NCC Media, rationalized that irrational marketplace by building an infrastructure around data, around platforms, around technology. And as a result, that business segment went from zero to what is today a $6 billion marketplace. 
So it, so, and this is kind of the next chapter of that, which is there's no one company, there's no one cable operator, satellite operator, teleco operator that's going to be successful themselves. It's really cooperation between all of them that will drive the TV advertising marketplace in this new data-driven digital, you know, digital first um, environment. And, and I think everybody is very well aware of that. So that that's really not, that really hasn't been um, a challenge at all, frankly. I think everybody knows where it's going. So let's go back to day one at Ampersand. What do you remember from then? And then beyond that, what were some of the big moves and big chess pieces that you wanted to move around and ultimately did move around? Yeah, so day one, um, day one was interesting um, for a few reasons. <laughs> um, first of all, I was interviewed for this job in every location but the NCC office. So first I walked into the NCC office on my first, it wasn't even my first day, it was actually before my official first day, but I wanted to go in and just walk around the office and meet people. Um, and um, and the office was just very stodgy, frankly. You know, it was very different from the from the digital kind of offices that I was used to um, through my career. So that was honestly like my first impression when I walked in the door was, oh my god, what did I do? What did I do? Now, my only saving grace in my interview process, you know, the board members who interviewed me for the job had actually said to me, hey, you're going to want to move offices. So at least in the back of my mind, I remembered that they they supported an office move. But honestly, that was my first like, oh, my God, how am I going to how am I going to create a modern, you know, digital first organization here? Like it, it just it was the antithesis of the feel that I wanted the company to have. Right. Um, so that was like my first thing. And then, you know, and then there was something like a hundred and something file cabinets. And I don't mean little file cabinets. I mean, file cabinets taller than me and I'm five foot one or something, five foot two. The, I mean, the big file cabinets all over the office in New York. Right. And so just, it's, it's, it sounds ridiculous, but the first, my first impression was the physical part of the company, not the DNA of the company. Cause the DNA of the company many may not know, is one of, of innovation. You know, NCC was an, a, a highly innovative company and thought of that way up until the very recent years, frankly. You know, they were an innovator in television. And so day one, I was thinking to myself, like, okay, I have a heave-ho to do from a culture perspective. So, so uh, and I didn't know anybody. Um, I also realized that people were dressed very formally versus what I would expect. So I remember seeing folks, you know, you can't ask people their ages, obviously, but I just, you know, I assumed somewhere in their twenties, you know, based on, and they just, I'm like, there's no way that that person chose to wear that on purpose. Like, and I, and I kept seeing people like that. And as it turns out, it's because of like the dress code that was required. And then, cause I asked the outgoing CEO, like, why are people like people look uncomfortable? I, I literally said, I think people look uncomfortable in their clothes. Like what's the deal with the dress code here? Um, and so my, my third day on the job, I sent out an email, an all-company email saying, uh, new dress code for the... I said, first of all, thanks everybody for welcoming me. Oh, by the way, new dress code for NCC is dress appropriately. Don't, don't make me clarify what that means, but 
just dress appropriately for your job. And there was literally cheers in New York. So I was really trying, my first push was trying to change the physical culture as opposed to the actual company culture. Because I didn't think that I'd be able to accomplish what I set out to do and what I was hired to do based on these, you know, if the company felt stodgy, we wouldn't be able to move as quickly as I wanted us to move. So you start lightening up with these things that seem not important. They're actually very important. Little things become very important in business, I think. And I think that's a very overlooked, leaders overlook that a lot. So that's one, that's one big thing. And then the second big thing is we started a cleaning, material cleaning out. So all the file cabinets in New York and across the country, um, I had, you know, we had a contest actually that whoever found the oldest paper in the file cabinet, everybody had to clean out all their individual stuff. And so, uh, and somebody won an iPad. And so we just made like fun things out of me, like, but my mission was to try to modernize the organization, you know? And so, and there's some really, there was some really cool technology when I actually dug into the real business part, which is my real job, right? Not the dress code and not the file cabinets. There was some really amazing technology, and that and that technology is actually the the cornerstone of of what is now the AND platform. Um, and so, and so, yeah. So that's kind of the the background. And then, um, you know, what we've done is we've obviously pulled together all the set top box insights across the ownership. Um, that became the front end of the AND platform. We have uh, some really amazing uh, measurement and analytics on the back end. So the platform that we pushed out in January was one really big push, which you know of. Just prior to that, we had our relaunch, which again, we're thankful to you and your team for providing us such an amazing forum to relaunch the brand. Um, and uh, and then most recently, you know, sort of the third sort of big puzzle piece that we started moving on was this Horizon partnership where we, um, we uh, we partnered with Verizon to represent their addressable households as well, um, which brings us to uh, you know over fifty percent of the addressable households um, in the United States. So you know the most substantial addressable footprint in the United States sits at ampersand. Nicole, there's so much out there about all the various tech-driven evolutions of television. Um, And there's a lot of terminology. There's connected TV and advanced TV and addressable. And, uh, you know, I'm sure I'm missing a few. Can you give us your sense and really try to make sense of it? I guess it's probably a better way to ask the question uh, for all of us because most of us are not as deep into this, and there's an awful lot happening, VOD. Help us make sense of all that. So I would say, um, so I would say connected TV is, so I would say advanced and addressable are, um, are kind of the same thing. Connected TV is a form of addressable television. Let me explain. So when you start moving out of linear, so there's linear, t- let's, let's first of all put things in two buckets. There's linear television. And then I would say there's everything else. Because we have more data in television now through the set-top boxes, when we pull together all the set-top box insights across our owners, everybody thinks that that can only inform the the digital-like television business. So linear addressable television or video on demand or connected television, OTT. But really that data can inform linear 
because we have a we have better insights into where audiences are watching even linear TV based on the data that we have. So the interesting joke is, even with all of the digital inventory that exists now, linear television still is capturing and will continue to capture most of the the dollars in television for the foreseeable future, right? We're in a pivot point. There's obviously more and more going to digital. I'm not delusional about that. But we can make better informed decisions in linear television based on the data that we... So advanced television, in my view, can even be that because we're advancing linear television buying with what we're doing. But the magic and what we're putting together at Ampersand and what we've built um, under Garrett Niedenmeyer, our, our CTO, is that we can actually find the same audiences in linear television as we can in linear addressable, OTT, CTV, digital video, all that sort of stuff. So I think our nomenclature to your point around what is advanced, what is addressable, what is CTV, we, I always say it's all TV, right? And, and my, it is all TV. And I think some of these pockets that we create for ourselves, we're very good at, in advertising. I think about uh, complicating, complicating things as opposed to simplifying things. And really what we're trying to do at Ampersand is simplify, which is all of these things are television, whether it's connected TV, OTT, addressable linear, VOD, you know, there's, there's some discussion about like video on demand when you actually go and watch a video, like a poll versus addressable television, linear addressable where you're watching live television and you can insert an ad live, that there's a difference in value of those two impressions. I don't think so because if I'm Nicole Pangas and I'm watching video on demand versus I'm watching linear television and, and an ad is inserted, why is there a difference in value between those things? There isn't because you're still reaching me as a person. So as we pivot to audiences in television, we have to sort of break down all of these silos that we're talking about, whether it's CTV or OTT or advanced TV or addressable. If we can target with data, I think really the only big difference that we need to talk about is a data-driven linear where you're not targeting by households, but by groups, right? Um, versus, versus all else, like anything digitally, which, is, which includes CTV and OTT and uh, linear addressable and all that sort of stuff. So that's why one of our taglines is it's all TV, because we're actually trying to simplify this and not get into this rigmarole of what is CTV versus OTT versus linear addressable. It's, it's the wrong it's the wrong conversation to have. It really should be what audience are you trying to reach and what are you trying to accomplish with your ad campaign or campaigns? And, and let's figure out how to reach those people, whether it's on linear or whether it's on, um, you know, some sort of digital platform. And Nicole, just to wrap up, one of the pieces that we were so proud to have participated in with you last year in New York at Advertising Week was ampersand support of the launch of Futurist Female, where we recognized young rising stars. There are so many awards in our industry which recognize senior leaders, but relatively few that recognize the next generation. And that's what Futurist Female was and is all about. And we're thrilled you'll be partnering with us again on it this fall at AW2020. I'd love to get your perspective. You were a very young CEO way back when. 
Uh, when you started at Ampersand, you were under 40, so that trend, if you will, has continued. But give us your perspective on, you know, challenges you faced, roadblocks you faced, uh, and uh, perhaps some words that might, you know, help inspire and inform that next generation of great female leaders. It it was uh, it was complicated. It, it was complicated. Um, my career has been, even though I've had all the people I just mentioned really supporting me. The truth is, I was the only woman sitting in meetings for, you know, ninety eight percent of my career. Um, and um, and it was hard. You know, it's hard. You know, uh, you know when I was pregnant. I I won't name names, but when I when I was pregnant with my, you know, for the first time, I had told one of my colleagues, um, that I was, that I was expecting and his response. And this is somebody who, who liked me, who I liked, and he didn't mean what he said, but I, when I'm going to share the insight, because sometimes it's, you don't mean what you, you don't mean it, but he said, wow, this is our worst nightmare come true. So what did that tell me? That told me that this was discussed at the exco level, that there was discussion about the fact that I was a female on the Exco. I was married for you know five years at the time when I um, when I first got pregnant, and and so you're like, holy crap! Now, what does that never? Who does that never happen to? That never happens to guys because there was all other men on the Exco. Nobody talked about whether or not they were going to be fathers anytime soon. But because I was the female, there was actually a discussion. And these are not men who I would call chauvinistic, but this was obviously somewhere in their minds. Like, what happens if Pangus? gets pregnant is she going to come back all that sort of stuff so these things sit with you and then you're paranoid because you're like oh god I can't be out too long because they're going to think I'm not going to come back or they're going to give my work to somebody else or whatever right all of these things so so these things matter and talking about it matters like talking about the fact that this was said to me talking about the fact that it's been hard talking about the fact that it's weird to go on executive trips and you're the only female with eight guys that's uncomfortable for a lot of reasons right and so um and so I, I'm open about talking about these things because it's the only way it's going to change is to not pretend like it's been it's been a smooth ride it's it's not you know it hasn't been a smooth ride um and so and so mentorship is important and being honest is important um you know I've, I've talked about my divorce I've talked about um you, you know like you have to just open up about these things, I think. And I'm sort of, I try as much as possible, really not just for women, but if anybody reaches out to me, I really try, whether I know them or not, frankly, I, you know, people reach out to me and it's like, Hey, I watched your blah, blah, blah. Do you, you know, can you, do you mind taking 15 minutes because I'm at a change in my career and I'd really love your insights. And I try desperately to take every one of those reach. It's hard, right? Because there's only so much time in the day, but I think, I think, you know, reaching your hand back out to the people that are reaching out to you. Um, and in some cases, even if they're not reaching out to you, but if you see, I've worked with women who I see how high potential they are. And so I'll reach out to them first to tell them that that's what I think of them. And that if they need, if they need an ear or if they're struggling with something or they have a, like that I'm open if they ever want to talk because some people don't even want to reach out for advice, uh, you know, on these things. So we have to get better as an industry 
um, I know we talk, it's, it's very much like the Black Lives Matter movement going on right now. Like, I think we talk a lot in our industry, but, but there's very few companies that are really trying to move the needle actively. Um, you know, and I'll hold it, I'll hold the mirror to myself on, 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 you know, at Ampersand. I'm, I feel like I'm big on diversity and inclusion, but if you look at the numbers at Ampersand, like we should be doing better, you know? And so, and so in the recent months, I'm really concentrating efforts on doing that. And so, these things matter. AW moms matters and, you know, and making sure that women are recognized for their contributions. Those things matter. However, what really matters is in the day-to-day. The day-to-day is what the awards are great and recognition is great. But what we need to do is make sure that we're pulling women in the same way that we're pulling minorities in the same way, you know, we, we have to get better at that um, for sure you know, in, in, in the company. And it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be novel that people like me are CEOs because, because why, you know, why not? And I don't mean that in an ego way, but the fact that everybody was surprised that, you know, a, like a, a younger female took a job, like, you know, why, why weren't there, there were men my age taking CEO jobs. Why weren't people so surprised about that? That by itself tells you something, right? It shouldn't be novel that there's a female a 39-year-old female CEO. When I became CEO, I was 39. There's been a ton of 39-year-old male CEOs, but it was such a big deal because it wasn't my age. It was my gender. That's a problem. Well, what a terrific answer. And Nicole, that just really exemplifies in so many ways why you represent the very best of the next generation of leaders and you know what gives us all optimism that going forward, no matter how tough the challenges are, we're going to figure this stuff out. Thanks so much for being here. You were fabulous. Okay. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. Nice to see you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.